My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This question is perhaps one of the most disturbing thoughts in all of Scripture, a heart-rending plea to God from a context of confusion in the depth of desperation. It's first a direct question seeking a direct response. Why have you forsaken me? It's also a grippingly personal plea. Why have you forsaken me? It also speaks to the heart of the perceived betrayal at the hands of the one who is trusted the most. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, it also raises the central and immediately theological concern. Why have you forsaken me? Because these words are spoken by Jesus from the cross in the final moments of his life on earth, they are some of the most well-known phrases from Psalm 22. In fact, in this stunning way, the psalm opens in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though these lines from Psalm 22.1 are easily recognizable, perhaps less well-known is the literary context of Psalm 22 as a whole. The rest of the psalm unfolds within view of this orienting starting point. There will be a candid description of human pain, and it will be addressed directly to God himself. In this way, David's psalm here partakes in the genre of lament. The shape of this particular psalm exemplifies the rhythm of lament that characterizes these kinds of texts. The psalmist will both soar and sink in his poetic reflection that expresses suffering and pleads for mercy. David continues in verses 1-2, through two, Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. The psalmist is engulfed in this situation of suffering. He follows this opening description with an immediate articulation of what he knows to be true of God. He is supreme in all things, and he has shown himself faithful in the past to keep his promises. David writes, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. The psalmist's great comfort relies on God's character as a God who can be trusted and who does not abandon those who are his. This is how the heart of the psalmist hopes, but he also sees the situation that is making his heart break and strain under the burden of his brokenness. From his perspective, he hurts with every fiber of his being. He reflects grimly in verses 6 through 8, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The cries of derision come from the crowds. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This dehumanizing suffering has left him feeling utterly abandoned and woefully exposed before the preening eyes of a watching and hostile world. Though his situation has invoked these primal thoughts of nothingness, he still remembers the promise that his identity is given by God and guarded by his sovereign hand. While this is a beautiful and comforting thought, it only increases the disorientation he feels from the cruelty of his circumstance. David remembers in verses 9 through 11, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. He then urges in his prayer, 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. At this point, David gives the longest description of the predicament that he cannot escape from. Here he paints his scene with the darkest hues that he uses in this psalm. These are the deepest shadows of his portrait of the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22. He details this harrowing scene by saying, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Several metaphors and word pictures are used here, and a variety of gritty physical details are methodically conveyed. He is surrounded by animals that seek to harm him. He is mercilessly exposed and riddled with mockery. His clothing is divided and gambled away. His body is broken. His emotional life is devastated. And his hands and feet pierced, holding him in place. There is no escape. There is no hope for breaking free from this ghastly plight. From this desperate place, the psalmist issues his cry for mercy. Just as he shifted from a description of despair to a request for deliverance early in the psalm, he does so here again by appealing to the Lord's character and ability. He says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. After this request, the psalm shifts from depicting the scene of deadly despair to the settled confidence of a declaration of deliverance. The one who suffered with great sorrow is now the one who sings with great joy. The psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the congregation I will praise you. This is the testimony from one whose pain has led to praise. In verse 23, he now calls on the people to join him in his song of deliverance. He says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Why is this call to worship so urgent and appropriate at this point? How can the psalmist shift from a lesson learned from his own suffering to a principled proclamation of how things are in reality? His answer is once again rooted in the character of the Lord. Verse 24 is perhaps the cornerstone promise that unlocks the logic of lament in this psalm. Here David declares, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to to him for help, he heard. The remainder of this psalm in verses 25 through 31 seeks to articulate the ripple effect of this divine reality and redemptive history and the lives of individual believers. David writes, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity will serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In this final sequence, the reflection on God's goodness to his people, even in the midst of their suffering, is portrayed as a reason to worship and also a reason to recognize God's sovereign rule over the earth. There are also hints of resurrection hope that God's care will extend even to those who met their death and returned to the dust. The Lord will care for those who trusted in the Lord even unto death. Though they have fallen, the praise of the Lord will still continue as one generation passes to the next. The scope of this psalm is quite remarkable. It begins with the perspective of a single sufferer and then ends with a searching statement about resurrection hope that goes far beyond a single life or a momentary trial. The psalm also opens with a striking and extended description of suffering and then transitions to a confident reflection on God's goodness and ultimate deliverance. Within the context of the psalm, these two opposite realities are brought into profound dialogue with one another. The suffering does not cancel out the hope. The hope does not diminish the suffering. This is the rhythm of lament. One of the great gifts of the canonical psalms of lament is that they not only express the theology and emotions of the biblical author, they can also shape and form the response of biblical readers. In light of these reflections, we are in a better place to understand Jesus' cry from the cross and the way the New Testament writers draw upon Psalm 22. For the Gospel writers, the scene of the righteous sufferer who cries out to the Lord in both despair and hope becomes one of the broad brush strokes they utilize when portraying the theological significance of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. When reading Psalm 22, we must reckon with both the beginning and the end of the psalm. This is the rhythm of lament, and this is one of the theological and intertextual aids the Gospel writers give us to interpret both the death and resurrection of Jesus. There are many theological and textual horizons that are required to fully reflect upon the meaning of Jesus' death, but I think the link to Psalm 22 in particular demonstrates that the message of the New Testament is not that the Father turned his back on the Son, but rather the message of the Gospels is that our salvation is secure because the Father did not turn his back on the Son. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a statement of abandonment by the Father who turned his face away from his beloved Son, but rather the opposite. It's a scream of lament that directly connects the horror of human pain to the resurrection reality that God has not hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. In the preface to his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Christopher Wright makes the following reflection. He says, I find myself aware that in reading the Hebrew scriptures, I am handling something that gives me a closer common link with Jesus than any archaeological artifact could ever do. For these are the words he read. These were the stories he knew. These were the songs he sang. These were the depths of wisdom and revelation and prophecy that shaped his whole view of life, the universe, and everything. In short, the deeper you go into understanding the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. End quote. At the moment of his death, Jesus expresses himself with the words of Psalm 22, a psalm that draws together both despair and deliverance, 
both suffering and salvation, both death and resurrection. Because of his accomplished work on the cross, we too can sing this song that David writes and Jesus sings. We too can embody the rhythm of lament in this life that we've been given, whether we sing it in the beauty of comfort or as death strikes its final blow. Praise the Lord for his grace. Thank you.